0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The past four years, really right up until this moment, have been a test for the American system. Over and over, we've heard it asked, can our institutions hold? Are the ideas and documents of the founders adequate for the modern age? At the same time, we've heard over and over again since November 8, 2016, how did we get here? What's been driving us to such political and social divisions, to the appetite for authoritarianism, the disregard for norms, the rural, urban, and educational divide. In response, many have looked at and written about tyranny and authoritarianism, what happened in other nations, in Germany in 1933 being the penultimate example. But what we often miss is what ties all of this together, the idea that when faced with a complex, sometimes unsolvable problem, it's best to go back to foundational principles to deconstruct the enterprise and strip it to its original foundation, to see how all of the problems have been layered on and how we might find new meanings and solutions in those layers. The good news is that our American experiment is still young enough to do this. And this is essentially what Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author Tom Ricks has done in his new book, First Principles. Tom Ricks has covered the U.S. military for The Washington Post from 2000 to 2008, He was on the staff of the Wall Street Journal for 17 years before that and has reported on American military operations throughout the world. He was a member of two Pulitzer Prize winning teams and also the author of several award winning and best selling books, including The Generals, The Gamble, and Churchill and Orwell. It is my pleasure to welcome Tom Ricks back to this program to talk about first principles what America's founders learned from the Greeks and Romans and how they shaped our country. Tom, thanks so much for joining us.
1: You're welcome. It's great to be back.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. You started this right after the 2016 election when, when a lot of people were asking, what happened? How did we get here? How did we come to this? And and talk about this idea of, of looking at foundational principles, first principles, as a way of stripping the enterprise bare to get back to how it all started.
1: Uh, as you say, like a lot of people, I woke up on that Wednesday morning after the 2016 president presidential election, and I said to myself, what happened here? I just don't understand it. I don't understand this country, where it is right now, how it got here. And i have been taught in college, when you have a fundamental issue, go back to the fundamental texts. You know, Go back to the origins. And so I went down to my library, and I took down Aristotle's politics, and I reread it slowly and carefully in the context of Donald Trump having just been elected president. And I was just looking for, okay, what does Aristotle have to say to me here? And it was intriguing. One thing immediately that leapt out was that oligarchies are the least stable form of governance. And I thought, well, we're kind of living in a democratic oligarchy that is the rule by the rich, an oligarchy perhaps with the trappings of democracy. So that intrigued me. And I think we've seen how unstable and odd a presidency an oligarch like Trump brought to the White House And that led me to other political philosophy, and that in turn led me to several mentions that the American founders were steeped in Greek and Roman philosophy and history and literature. So I started reading them and especially looking at what they read, what their educations were. And that led to a kind of four-year-long journey for me to try to see the world through their eyes and try to see the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence as they wrote them, what they meant by them, and then finally to say, okay, uh, what would they think if they saw this country today?
0: As you looked at that, it seems that there were really maybe two different paths. One was the philosophical, cultural underpinnings of the effort. The other was, was the more practical way in which the elements of government came together. Talk a little bit about that
1: nexus. Well, as these guys... Uh, started making a revolution, and then designing a country, they didn't feel like they had a whole lot of examples to work with. There had not been many successful republics, especially big successful republics, in world history. There was the Roman Republic. There were some small Greek city-states. There was the failed example of the English Civil War, which led to an English commonwealth, but very quickly turned into a dictatorship under Cromwell. And so they were worried. Montesquieu, the great French philosopher of the Enlightenment, who himself is studying Roman and and, uh, history and trying to draw lessons from it, Montesquieu tells them, you can't have a big republic. So they're really kind of desperate and looking for what can we do, how can we design a country that will last and can be a big country that doesn't have these flaws. For them... The core political narrative of world history was the Roman Republic, what happened to it, and especially the decline of the Roman Republic. When it goes from being a republic, that is, uh, something owned by the people, you know, uh, with some elements of democracy, aristocracy, and monarchy mixed in it, something that fell apart and declined and ultimately was taken over by a general Julius Caesar. How do we avoid that? Well, the two lessons they took away from that were that the Roman Republic was killed by number 1, corruption, money, love of luxury, things like that. And two, the Roman Republic was killed by factionalism, by that they meant partisanship, what we would call political parties. And so they are desperate in the 1770s and 1780s right after the revolution to avoid that. And that brings them into a lot of problems, as does, by the way, slavery.
0: And they really did understand this idea of factions. You talk a lot about that, particularly with respect to Madison and and Washington, who understood that they were going to be factions, but they had to find ways to really abrogate them in some way.
1: Well, John Adams um, becomes president. He follows Washington. Washington simply could rule by his background, his record as a general, and his magisterial presence. Adams has none of that. Adams is kind of an 18th century version of Woody Allen, wears his feelings on his sleeves, very vain, very anxious, always thinks people are saying bad things about him. So Adams has no personal prestige, really. He becomes president right after Washington, 1796, and he's antagonized. By critics. He thinks this is bad. I'm the president. You can't criticize me. That's factionalism. And that will bring down the country. It's, it's, the being a factionalist, a party member, is close to treason. And so he begins throwing opposition newspaper editors in jail. Uh, there are about 160 newspapers in the country. 25 are quite critical of them. And 12 of the newspaper editors from that 25 he throws in jail. And he thinks he's doing the right thing. Uh, interestingly, Adams, four years later, becomes the first one term president. He's thrown out of office, the first president to not be reelected. He's quite bitter about it. Uh, he makes the transition to his successor difficult. But to his credit, he recognizes that he is lost and he turns over power peacefully to Thomas Jefferson. And that is John Adams' great achievement. He was the first American president to turn power over to the opposition. And I only wish that the current occupant of the White House would learn from that lesson.
0: The other thing that particularly Madison understood is that they were going to be competing interests, and he tried to figure out ways to balance those interests.
1: That's right. Madison comes along, he's younger than the rest. Um, He's almost a new generation. And also, he's less of a statesman than he is a national man, an American. And there's somebody else similar to him, Alexander Hamilton, another younger guy. And they've been listening to all the old guys who made the revolution, talk about how fashion's bad, we're going to have to rule by virtue, we need virtuous men in public office. And they say, time out, that's not going to happen. You can't expect virtue to take care of faction. Let's balance faction with faction. Let's balance interest with interest. And they say, but then you're going to have people accrue great power. And Madison says, no, I've spent the last four years studying Greek and Roman history in a really rigorous way, developing political theory. And what I'm going to do is design a constitution that disperses power so greatly across the country that no one will be able to get enough power to enforce their view on everybody else. If you're going to move forward in this country, if you're going to have any progress, you're going to have to make deals, um, form alliances, have compromises. So he disperses power across three branches of the federal government. With, Unlike, say, England, you can't have members of the legislative branch sit in the cabinet of the executive branch. So he keeps those powers apart. Uh, within the one of those branches, the legislative branch, he has two different houses to further separate power. And then, of course, there's a separation, a dispersal of power between the states and the federal government. So power is really broadly strewn across. And this is why I think Madison would say you people talking about gridlock, that's not a bug, that's a feature. If you can't get your act together, if you can't get compromises, you're going to get gridlock. And why is good luck okay? Because it's better than fighting physically, or better than having one side say, fine, we tried to work with you. We're just gonna force our view on everybody else. There was
0: also this idea that that the clash of ideas that factions were okay within the context of elections, but not with respect to governing. Talk about that distinction.
1: The expectation was once one side was elected, then then you'd go on, but it kind of develops. The party system grows up and uh, you develop eventually a concept of a loyal opposition, which is look, we're not part of the government. We oppose their views, but we all support the state. We all support the broader view of what this country is. And I think that really was true to a surprising degree, with the exception of Aaron Burr, uh, first elected vice president under Thomas Jefferson, then, of course, shoots Alexander Hamilton, and a few years later is indicted for treason. Um, aside from him, though, there was a phrase in the constitution that i think that we neglect that the founders really did believe in which is the general welfare by which they meant the common good the public good and i think we've kind of lost our grasp on that that there are things that are more important than individuals sometimes that there are there are public goods for example the environment is a public good Um, air water quality education is a public good when you educate people it improves the entire society. And a, and a third public good, particularly relevant this year, is public health. It is good for the public to be healthy, because if people aren't getting sick, then they're not going to get you sick. And it's something that a lot of people in this country don't seem to understand this year, that it when you refuse to go along with public health measures, you hurt the public good. It has a genuine consequence. So I wish we would get back to that phrase in the Constitution a little bit more, the general welfare. I think we've fallen in love with the market in this country over the last 50 years and made the market the ultimate judge of things, when it is not always. Uh, it, it's sometimes good for judging business, but it, it, uh, I don't think it should let it govern our morality, for example. We shouldn't let people die from health problems because they don't have enough money to get health care. I think the public the health, health care itself, should be treated as a public good, not as a for-profit business.
0: Talk about democracy and how it fits into this larger story.
1: This is a sort of talking point for conservatives over the last couple of decades in this country. We are not a democracy. We are a republic. And there is some truth to that. We are a rep- supposed to be a republic with democratic trappings. We are a republic in which the people are sovereign. This was a, something that some of the founders had a hard, hard time grasping. Uh, John Adams at one point writes to his cousin the revolutionary uh, Samuel Adams and says the people have uh, part of the sovereignty and Samuel writes back hey, go look at the Constitution the people are sovereign we the people begins you know, begins the document that lays out the fundamental law of the land so the people are sovereign and that makes it a democratic republic but it's not, not just a pure democracy because Power is distributed, again, between the legislative, executive, and judiciary. Uh, su- Supreme Court judges serve for life. They are not elected. Uh, the people don't control the Supreme Court, so that's not democratic. And originally, the Senate was not elected by the people. It was chosen by state legislatures, the U.S. Senate. So there are trappings of aristocracy, even a little bit of monarchy, in the executive branch the presidency. Uh, So it's a mixed form of government, but it ultimately is a democratic republic.
0: One of the things that that they all focused on, particularly those that looked hard at the Roman Republic, was this idea of sustainability, how to keep it going.
1: Yeah, uh, it was a terrible concern for them. And reading uh, Roman history for them had the urgency of front page news, especially because Montesquieu, who, by the way, was much more important than John Locke. In developing the Constitution, Montesquieu, the great French philosopher, really the inventor of the modern, tolerant, liberal, democratic state, he says that the only successful republics have been city states. You can't have big republics, and even the smaller republics tend not to last long. So when they're writing the Constitution, they have the warning of Montesquieu. And they're trying to figure out what do we do about it. And remember, the Constitution here is not just the law of the land, it's also kind of a peace treaty between some states that are very different. One quick example is that the delegations from South Carolina and Georgia said if you people put a whiff of getting rid of slavery, of abolitionism, into this document, we're going to walk. We will not be part of this new country. And that was significant. Because even though South Carolina and Georgia were kind of small, that would give an opportunity for France or Spain or England to have a toehold next to the new United States. And that was very worrisome. You didn't want to have those small little states down there needing protection and so looking to Europe. You didn't want to have European powers getting involved again in North America after the English get kicked out by the revolution. So they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we make this sustainable? Again, uh, balances between big states and small states. Um, Madison says, look, uh, the ancient Greeks had these leagues, these confederations, uh, like the Lycian League. And one of them, one of the most successful, the Amphictyonic League, if I, if I get the word correctly, um, the Amphictyonic League said, ha- had a deal under which no matter whether you were a big city state or a small city state, in their meetings, uh, every of each state had two votes, and that's what we get with the U.S. Senate. And again, that forms the Electoral College, being based on the number of senators you have plus the number of representatives you have in Congress. So the reason today that Wyoming, which is I think 125th the size of California, has two senators and California, has two senators, is because that's the way the ancient Greeks did it. And that's the way Madison and the people around him thought, that's how you build a sustainable republic, something that can expand. And the other big thing in the Constitution is you can amend it. You can change it. They built it to be amended. So people are worried about not having enough uh, individual rights explicitly stated. They put in a Bill of Rights. And the Constitution changed a lot Uh, in its first 100 years. The election of 1800 between uh, Jefferson, Burr, and Adams gets screwed up because of some flaws in the writing of the Constitution, and so they amend it. And I think they'd kind of be surprised that we haven't been amending it lately, that we haven't been changing it. For example, I would love to see um, term limits on Supreme uh, Court. Just give them an 18-year or maybe a 14-year term Rather than a life term, I think that would be a good change. I'd like to see us consider having three senators for big states, two senators for the middle third, and one senator only for the smaller states, because the uh, gap between the big and the small is much bigger than it was back when they wrote the Constitution. And I think they would uh, fault us, the founders. Look at you know clearly they'd say there are problems in the Constitution, fix them. We we designed this thing to be amended because that's what makes it sustainable.
0: And that really touches on the next point. What were some of the other flaws beyond, obviously, slavery, which was a big flaw originally built into this? What are some of the other flaws that really became self-evident to you as you dug into this?
1: Well, you've got to uh, explain slavery a bit because it is such a profound flaw. Uh, in high school, I was taught that slavery was a stain on the American fabric. And I've come to think that's wrong. It is not a stain on the American fabric. Slavery is woven into the American fabric. It is part of the American fabric. They wrote the fact of slavery into the Constitution and explicitly stated that a black enslaved human being was three-fifths of a person, 60% of a person. And it's a problem we still live with. Uh, That formulation leads directly to the Civil War. And then the Civil War ends, and black people emerge free, but as second class citizens. And they're held as second class citizens for well over another hundred years. It's only the civil rights movement that says, actually, okay, maybe we'll try to treat you as first class citizens. And even now, there are some Americans who don't believe that black people are first class citizens. There are some Americans wearing police uniforms who don't treat uh, some black people like their first-class citizens. So this problem echoes again and again and again down to us. Um, the second problem that the founders really had writing the Constitution was they didn't believe in party politics. And so we have a hard time getting party politics to fit into the Constitution, but eventually it, it kind, kind of does. The third problem is norms, norms of behavior um, and Washington, as president, uh, uses his two terms as the first president to kind of develop some norms of the presidency. How should a president act? Uh, And he decides two terms is enough. After eight years, the president should step down and peacefully turn over power to his successor, uh, whether or not he agrees with that person. That's a norm, the two-term norm, that eventually is written into law. But there's other norms about how the president should behave, how he should talk about the opposition, how he should deal with the Supreme Court. And what we have seen with Donald Trump is that there are a lot of things that we kind of assume presidents would behave. but They were really norms. And Trump, largely in ignorance of them, but sometimes consciously violating them, has stomped all over the norms. So one thing we need to think about is should some of those norms be written into law? Should should they have more force than they have? One norm is turning over power gracefully and quickly to your successor, and we're living this right now. This is right now. We're the first time in American history in which a president who is clearly lost, um, and which there is no plausible allegation of fraud that somehow turned the outcome differently, but yet refuses to concede. Um, and is threatening um, to stay in power somehow if if he possibly can, that is a norm that has just been terribly violated. We could have a simple law saying whoever um, has lost you know the electoral vote as certified by the states must initiate transition uh, and I think we probably will have a law um, but look, the Constitution, despite its flaws, is a resilient document, and we've seen even with Trump testing. Stomping all over norms. He's very good at stomping all over norms, but he's not very good at dealing with the Constitution. And again and again, he's kind of stubbed his toe on it when he finds out that even though he appointed a Supreme Court that's ideologically very supportive of him, that it doesn't work for him. And also that Nancy Pelosi is an independent power of an independent branch of government that considers herself co-equal to the presidency, and she doesn't work for him. So... Uh, Trump has banged up against judges, banged up against Congress, been constantly surprised when he's told, no, you can't do that. I think Trump thinks he was kind of elected king. Uh, And it's finding out no, you are a president with powers, but there are a lot of other people with powers. And I think Madison looking at this would say, hey, great, that's, that's the system I designed. Why? Well, as Madison said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need a government. And as Jefferson said, bad men will sometimes get into power. So they anticipated problems of a guy like Trump. And they'd say, you know, the machine we work um, has survived even Trump.
0: One of the things that one wonders what they would have made of is the amount of money that is corrupting the system today.
1: I think they'd be horrified by it. Uh, remember the two things that they really feared studying Roman history were faction and corruption. By corruption, they meant money and the pursuit of luxury, things like that. I think they would look at American politics today and say, this is crazy. This is exactly what we didn't want. That this is what we talked about when we said corruption, that money runs politics. Now, money's always been important in politics in America, but never as important as it is now. They'd say, you've made the dollar more important than the vote. You have this crazy legal fiction that corporations are people and the corporations can donate money to politics just like people can, that somehow that's free speech. Uh, I think they would really say, you're well off the tracks here, and this is the path that you're on, is the path to oligarchy. Not the democratic republic we envisioned.
0: One of the things that that is striking is the way these Western values, these these philosophical ideas that come from the Romans and Greeks that you talk about, being so profound and so influential for the founders, how they have come into to some disrepute today among certain quarters.
1: Yeah, um, I think that's when the system stops stops working for everybody. The people begin to question the system, and I and. I sympathize with that. And I think in the last 40 or 50 years in this country, the wealthy have basically run away with control of the government. Uh, basically, the middle class has flatlined economically since the Reagan years, and all new wealth generated in this country since then has gone to the top 1%. All the productivity gains have been captured by the top 1%. So you have the super rich, super wealthy who have withdrawn from society, have privatized most of the things they need in life. They basically need, you know, live in gated communities with private schools and their private forms of transportation. They've abandoned the public goods of education, transportation, uh, public health, and so on. And they are in a situation where they can tell Congress what to do. I'm not a huge fan of Bernie Sanders. He sometimes feels to me like the left wing's version of Newt Gingrich. Yet Bernie Sanders did say something that I think is quite accurate, which is that Congress no longer regulates Wall Street. Wall Street regulates Congress. And that's a failure of democracy. And I think when people some, yes, yeah, some people who vote for Trump vote for Trump because they're white supremacist um, and they're racist. Others vote for Trump because they don't really care one way or another about racism, but they feel disrespected by the current system, and they feel mocked and left out. Uh, the, The economies on the West Coast, East Coast, and the Gulf Coast are doing pretty well, but the middle of the country is not. And I think this is kind of a protest vote to say the system isn't working for us, and we should listen to that. I think we need to stop redistributing wealth upward and start redistributing wealth downward, and simultaneously get money out of politics.
0: The other side of this is the degree to which these things have become so ingrained in the culture, issues of race, issues of money, issues of political parties, that it sometimes seems that it's harder to, that it'll be harder to change the culture of these things than it will be to change the system. Talk about that.
1: Well, it's funny, I've been reading a lot of Martin Luther King recently, because King and the Civil Rights Movement, which is much broader than him, uh, brought about a major change in American life relatively quickly, from segregation being seen as something that was going to be there forever, or at least hundreds of years, to suddenly, 10 years later, being against the law. And Martin Luther King said something, I think, quite wise about this. He said, I can't change what's in your heart, but we can change how you behave. And that came from uh, an insight, uh, I think that may go back to Gandhi, which is it's much easier to change behaviors than attitudes. But once you change behaviors, attitudes start to change too. Once you, uh, for example, have integrated schools, then people's behaviors start changing and then their hearts start changing.
0: Tom Ricks. The book is First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans and How They Shaped Our Country. Tom, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: I I appreciate you having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you.